This Week in Startups, The Next Unicorns is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get NetSuite's free guide, 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, when you go to netsuite.com slash twist. LinkedIn. You need LinkedIn jobs to find the right people for your business. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash unicorn and get $50 off your first job post. And Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important lines of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Get an instant quote and $5,000 of AWS credit at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get 10% off by using offer code TWIST10. All right, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups, an amazing episode today. I have with me, for the first time, a CIA analyst, somebody who did strategic analysis at the office of the Secretary of Defense, a consultant for DARPA, and the founder of Expanse.co, Tim Junio, is on the podcast. Welcome to the pod, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I got a lot I want to talk to you about with, like, global perspective. You've agreed to talk about uh, your time in the CIA without giving anything away. At 4 p.m. on Friday, so I'm a little disarmed, but okay. Yeah, perfect. We'll get into it at some point. Uh, don't say anything. That'll get us both in trouble. Uh, as everybody knows, I'm not in the CIA. I have never worked for the CIA. I've never met anybody from the CIA before today. Um, that being said, I do travel the world a lot, big finance, uh, but um, tell us, what is Expanse.co? Uh, so Expanse is the first platform for internet operations management. Uh, so we're trying to make a new category. I realize internet operations management is not a resonant phrase. Uh, so I'll take a step back and just kind of explain what's the thing that we're trying to do in the world. Uh, if you think about how use of the internet has unfolded over the last couple of decades, particularly in the enterprise space, <clears throat> yeah, uh, in the enterprise space, we have observed a cumulative complexity of people buying stuff and connecting it, connecting it over the internet using Ethernet first yeah. and then Wi-Fi networks, whatever. And there's this morass of stuff that's out there all over the place, on-premises and corporate offices, regional offices, commercial Nest clouds, cams, Nest thermostats, IoT. Sonos, right. radios, all kinds of stuff. Right. And the way people deal with that today is basically in a one-off. You might use a tool for one thing that you do on the internet yeah. and then probably use spreadsheets for management of the workflows and what people are doing. Mm. So over half a trillion a year is spent on connectivity and it's all managed through like a subscription with AT&T and then a bunch of Excel documents. It's actually kind of crazy. There's no CRM, as it were, of the devices, servers, nodes on your network. So if you're you're some giant company like Verizon or, I don't know, a university, Harvard, NYU, whatever, and you've got this huge campus, you might have millions of IP addresses and devices and have no idea what they are. Exactly. And this is called the surface, the threat surface in security circles, correct? Yes. Attack surface. Attack surface. Attack surface. Attack surface. That's how and, the security community usually right. refers to it. And so when you start having the proliferation of servers in a organization and IoT devices are huge, the threat surface, you say threat surface? Attack surface. Attack surface, right. I'm just thinking of like the Death Star gets bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. And there might be a little thermo reactor that they never plugged up that could blow the whole thing up. 
It's a great metaphor. So yeah. in almost every major breach, cybersecurity breach we've observed, there was something like that where multiple things had to go wrong. It wasn't just the exhaust port. You also had to have your TIE fighters fail and you know the laser yeah. turrets. So you have to be able to get close enough. And then inside, you need to have not had shielding and nobody ever patched, let's say, that problem inside yeah. the Death Star either. So that's how Equifax happened, Capital One happened, Sony. Almost every major breach had something wrong in the attack surface. And that was how the breach first started. So step one is with Expanse to just know what the attack surface is. That's right. So create an inventory of what's everything on the internet for organizations, really big companies and government agencies. Every military service, for example, is a customer, Army, Navy, Air Force. Oh, wow. You've already got all of them. Yeah. Uh, and It's a big problem. Uh, you would think, right? Um, and when you look at the attacks that have occurred... Let's just talk about one category of attack, because I think this is a really good... What I'd like to do in this episode is talk about attacks in general and just the threat in the world and where the world is going in terms of these attacks. Um, everybody's heard of the DDoS attack, the famous denial of service, right? Um, what is it? Double D, is it? Distributed. Distributed denial of service. And the second largest attack in the history of the internet was the Dyn attack, and that was an IoT attack. Um, it was also a great investment on your part. Died uh, <laughs> worked out okay. I was on yeah. the board of that one. But uh, this was, um, uh, this malware was called Miri, Mir Mirai. Mirai. Yep. Explain what happened in that attack. I mean, they did get through it, but this was a two or three day arduous uh, recovery um, because of it. Yeah. That is a beautiful example yeah. of our value prop as a company. So Mirai was a worm that propagated via a protocol called Telnet. Explain so, what a worm is for people who haven't heard that term. Uh, so it's a type of malware that self-propagates mm -hmm. uh, and attempts to find other exploitable services running uh, over internet protocol where it could infect itself and then continue to repropagate. So with Mirai, there was this particular unencrypted remote access protocol, which was first released in the 60s, uh, called Telnet, totally unencrypted, very, very insecure, should never be accessible over the public internet to anybody. And it turned out there were very many millions on the public internet and almost uh, anybody could find them. Like if you were a nation state actor, criminal actor, whatever, you can just start looking for these exposed servers to try and hack them and turn them into your pawns to then go out and do these campaigns. So what happened to Dyn was effectively Mirai propagated broadly and was attacking major web properties. So in the Dyn attack, we ended up seeing major services go down. Like I think Reddit, Twitter were affected. Really, big yeah. Companies. I mean, it was a flood of an attack. New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, everybody kind of got attacked by that one. And so the worm is a basically like a virus, but its first order of business is not just to shut anything down; it's to propagate itself. So it exactly. says, "I got yep. into this device," and I think there were a lot of IoT devices, yes, like webcams, like these cheap Chinese like commodity webcams that DVRs, you, DVRs, routers, all kinds of stuff, all those kind of routers. They get made in China. They're using like some off-the-shelf software. Nobody's thinking about. There's no instruction manual, but they cost ten bucks to put a webcam in your house or twenty bucks, commodity stuff. People throw these things on their network. They don't know. They just increase the attack surface massively because there's been no thought put into them, correct? 
You nailed it. So you mentioned Nest earlier. Yeah. So some companies have built security kind of from the start. Right. So security as part of product development is their mindset. But the overwhelming majority of IoT manufacturers do not start with security because shipping the product at the lowest price is the first priority. It's oh. going to slow down your release date and it's mm -hmm. going to be more expensive to make a more secure product. And you as the consumer, what do you want? You want it to be easy to take that webcam out of the box and connect it to internet. Right. And then what are the odds that you as a consumer are going to have to deal with any consequences incredibly low? And even if your webcam were part of a botnet, you personally wouldn't even notice. Right. So your incentive to secure it is also low. So you have the two main parties there, the person buying it and installing it and the person who manufactured it. It's a tragedy of the commons. They don't have any skin in the game. They have $20 in the game, what it costs to buy it and whatever the profit is. But if it is used in a coordinated attack for a million of these to wake up and flood a network with these DDoS, DDoS, I guess is how people pronounce it, right? Yep. DDoS? DDoS. To, to do a DDoS attack, like it's not your fault. It's not your problem. And then that's why sometimes people will be like, hey, my Wi-Fi at home, my internet is down, where it's just really slow. It's because one of their devices may have been pawned. It may have been taken over by a worm to use for nefarious. For sure. That's part of the explanation. Yep. And what's going on. Yeah. And so the other big attack was the GitHub attack, right? That was last year or this year, that big giant one. Um, that was the biggest one. 126 million packets per second, 1.3 terabytes per second. Um, and it was a memcache DDoS attack by a series of bots. And it was amplified the magnitude attack by 50,000 X. These, are these DDoS attacks something to worry about or are they just a nuisance now? So I, first off, my company doesn't specialize in anti-DDoS technology right. because I think it's mostly a nuisance that to a large extent is being well handled. So even though attacks like this happen and they're disruptive, there's a business interruption cost. It's not really destructive. Right. And a lot of really great technologies uh, have come up to help mm. defend against them. So for example, Cloudflare, a company that yeah. IPO'd this year, uh, has a very advanced anti-DDoS product using right. distributed data centers around the world. So to counter the distributed denial of service, they have distributed data centers so that they have load capacity to reroute, reshape your traffic in a way that helps you avoid the consequences of a DDoS right. attack. So it requires an, another degree of sophistication to be able to do something like what you're yeah. describing, to actually take down major web properties today. It's right. a hard problem. So it's profitable if you can do it. And there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes I can't quantify because yeah. nobody's aggregating those data. But if you talk, talk to people in the know at big companies with consumer-facing web properties, there's blackmail and like hidden stuff going on where right. people threaten to do attacks against them unless they pay some small fee and then you see these bounties effectively being paid out privately or blackmail being paid out privately. All right, when we get back to this quick break, I want to know from you, based on your estimates and your expertise, if we took the Fortune 500, how many of those companies have been blackmailed? And then how many of them would you guesstimate, it's a guess, have actually at some point paid some amount of blackmail because it's easier to do that than to actually try to uh, fight the uh, attack when we get back on this week of startups. 
Hey, everybody. I'm here with my friend Jason Maynard, who works at NetSuite. Tell everybody, what do you do, Jason? You know, I do I do many things here at NetSuite, but I run the field operations for the business unit. After you've implemented it, what should I be looking for as a founder when I'm looking at my numbers? So once I've got my numbers clean, what should I be focused on? Is it cash flow, projections? How does a, a founder go from you know, that product market fit phase, which is usually the first year or two, to that scale phase. So the biggest thing in every company is what are your customer acquisition costs? When you're really trying to figure out, once you go from product market fit, it's how do you efficiently acquire customers, right? I mean, that's the thing that everybody has to worry about. How do you- CAC. CAC. How do you generate top line? So those to me are the metrics. If you look at successful scaling companies, they figure out the unit economics of how to acquire and retain a customer. If you don't get that right, nothing else works. Yeah, you're, if you don't have your unit economics right, you're going to be hitting the gas on a car where maybe the steering wheel is not attached, yeah. and that's not going to be pleasant for anybody yeah. on the, in the car. Brakes don't work, you yeah. name it. Yeah, no, but that's yeah. the, look, it's, it's basic business 101, but that is the thing that if you think about companies that have figured the model out early on, you know, you got to get that right. If you don't, doesn't mean you can't go raise more money, mm. but it either down the road at some point that has to become the the key thing all right right now netsuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide the seven key strategies to grow your profits so go to netsuite.com slash twist netsuite.com slash twist and get that free guide seven key strategies to grow your profits we appreciate the work you're doing in the startup community it's great thanks pal thanks all right we'll be back with more all right tim junio is here He is the CEO and co-founder of Expanse, which is one of the companies we selected for our next unicorn series. We call them Sunicorns, uh, colloquially, in the Valley, uh, and they are well on their way to becoming a major concern. You've raised, uh, I guess you did $70 million in the last Series C. Congratulations on that. That happened in April. Uh, TPG Growth, which is uh, a firm that is typically involved before a company goes public, uh, and you also have Founders Funds, our friend over there, are involved. You've raised $136 million to date, 100-plus employees founded just over seven years ago. Uh, when we left our hero, Tim, uh, from Expanse, and you can go to Expanse.co to see the offering, we were talking a little bit about these denial-of-service attacks, and then we're, we kind of dovetailed into people paying ransoms. Of the Fortune 500, 500, if you were to pick a number from zero to 500, how many of them have been threatened with uh, blackmail. Ooh. So um, the number of blackmails that are actually paid is a total well, let's guess. Well, go, let's so go with- So first, how many have been threatened? Yes. I would guess four out of five, like 80%. So 400 yeah, would, or 500. I, that, would, that, would be, that would be my guess. Uh, In terms of actually paying a blackmail, because sometimes people are just like, send $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, and we will not expose this file of credit cards. It would seem- that that's a pretty easy bill to pay because the amount you'll pay to the PR company to uh, to put out the press release would be $20,000 over the thing. So how many of them do you think have actually paid this kind of blackmail or settled with a hacker, a black hat hacker? I think a much smaller fraction. Like I would guess maybe one in five have ever done something like that. But again, this is this is speculative. So totally speculative. once uh, for a company, you get into that kind of scenario, your GC is involved, your general counsel is involved. It's a legal matter. Right. And I think that uh, most folks in the industry and broad, more broadly in IT would be surprised at how frequently a company would rather settle a lawsuit or privately deal with a matter rather than invest in better security. Uh, Bizarre. 
from my point of view, obviously, yes, you should spend on the best technology yeah. and companies possible. Uh, but it, I actually think a substantial proportion of the market is willing to say there's an acceptable level of risk. Mm. And even if I accept something like, and again, putting myself in the you know position of a CIO, CTO, head of risk, et cetera, the odds that I'm going to get breached in the next few years are pretty high. Like if I'm a Fortune 500 company, some cybersecurity incident probably going to happen like within the next three years uh, to a Fortune 500 company. It's pretty much then, guaranteed something's going to happen. And then the question is, how bad is it going to be? So an employee's laptop, you know, losing uh, control over a laptop because it's stolen on a train or something and you're using full disk encryption, whatever. Like those are concerns that 10 years ago were, I guess, higher profile. And now they're kind of dealt with. It's the cost of doing business and it's an acceptable risk. But then you get into these scenarios of these Internet facing attacks, like what we observed happening with Capital One, with Equifax that are devastating to the brand, getting people Describe what fired. happened in those uh, attacks. Yeah. So in Capital One, there was a very labor intensive process. Process where a gifted person uh, discovered a web login for a firewall in AWS. So they were able to issue commands to that firewall over the public internet that got it to spit back information, including credential information. So wow. it was a very labor intensive thing, but you, they didn't need to have that login on the public internet at all. So just as an example, why you want to reduce the attack surface, why do you not want to have stuff out there? You don't want anything discoverable except for for web properties that people are supposed to go to, it's for reasons like this. So, so somebody put up the firewall, which was good intent, mm -hmm. but they allowed access to the admin console right. of the firewall, right. firewall obviously to protect people from getting into the servers. They made it so you could log in over the internet, and which is a feature right. that some people might value, like if you had a remote team, the ability to do that, but under no circumstances should you do that. All of that should occur through some sort of protected VPN into a, a data center in order to interact with that device, correct? Yes. That's, uh, that is our position. That is my personal position. That is what I tell customers. And uh, again, to the point of being amazed at how some of these risk choices are made, uh, for years, we have been sharing this kind of information with customers. You have a security appliance that has its login on the public internet. You have a web proxy device. It's a thing used for uh, web traffic security for employees to make sure they're not going to porn sites in the office yeah. or whatever. We see their admin consoles on the internet. Internet. We've even seen for mobile cell towers, the administrator page on the public internet, data what? center control systems, uh, power distribution These systems. These don't need to be on the open internet. That's just a checkbox to be turned off, correct? Yes. And you say, just don't let people ad address this admin console via an IP address. Right. You can and only get to it internally if you're on the local network. Yes. And so the problem is you have these compounding levels of responsibility. So the person who's using it probably wants uh. to access it remotely. You don't want to have to hire more people who are working locally or on site mm. or whatever. So you can configure superior remote access. That's another layer of complexity. And you need to know that thing was there to begin with. Right. So if you're a central security organization, part of the challenge is if you've got a regional office in London and they set this stuff up, do you have any idea what they did regarding their local firewall configuration? For most companies, the answer is no. Oh, so brutal. And it's then, not all bad, by the way. There are yeah. reasons to be optimistic about cybersecurity, too. So are there? started with the dooming. What, what, I, so. I mean, it, it feels to me like there's more bad actors and a lot of sloppiness. I mean, you do have things like, is it Hacker One putting out the bounties there and yes. making it a very positive... Another NEA portfolio company. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, you have Same NEA. cohort. Yeah, and it's, 
that seems like a great idea. We had HackerOne's CEO on. That seems like a tremendously good idea to just have the white hat hackers pounding your door. Has that made a significant impact on the industry? I think so. And yeah. HackerOne is trying to aggregate the kind of expertise in one spot and run larger bounty programs. Companies have been doing versions of this for a while. United Airlines started giving away miles to people who told them about cybersecurity flaws in their huh. web properties. Uh, so I certainly think the uh, hardening is a good thing, including for our country. So you were saying at some point you wanted to talk about international yeah. you know, systemic trends. So one thing I would say is kind of interesting. Our generation is living through very very significant cybersecurity challenges such that I'm hopeful the next generation will be different. We'll have better hygiene. We'll yeah. be thinking about security and privacy as part of how we build systems and build products. Like we talked about Nest and other yeah. IoT companies that are cloud native in how they're building their software architectures, I think are in a better security position than any of the networking companies and internet companies of the last you know 30 years. And the reason they're in better shape today is because you have cloud-based services that they're <clears throat> coming to the game with their offering knowing that people's number one concern will be security. So they have to be on top of that to a level that an internal team setting up servers would not be as vigilant on average. And it's a lot easier today. Uh, so if you think about setting up services in yeah. AWS, how uh, developer operations, DevOps works today, yeah. uh, that automation and how you would stand up a new service as a company mm. uh, has a lot of security built into it, or it could if that's how you design from the beginning, as opposed to if you think about a company even 10 years ago, before AWS, GCP, and Azure were as big a thing as they are today, you would be dealing with the question of what's the co-location facility, who's managing the servers, oh, what's boy. the hardware that's running on it, and then who is administering the firmware on the server administration card on the server in the data center. Just so, patching and keeping that stuff up to date is a full-time job. Right. And when you have Amazon doing it or Azure or Google Cloud, you've got the best person in the world or best team in the world, hopefully, doing it for everybody. So hopefully, on average, the security level goes up, correct? Yes. Ah. And if something sucks, like you decide you need to get rid of it because it's uh, compromised or it's deprecated or you don't need it anymore, you could kill it. And it's cheap and easy. You don't have to deal with, uh, I bought a bunch of stuff and I'm going to wipe these hard uh, drives, et cetera. You can just shut it down and move on and stand up something new and do migrations cheap and easy within the cloud provider, for example. And then the corporate network is changing its profile mm -hmm. where the laptop is effectively a thin client today for the corporate network. So it doesn't have the same kind of criticality as as businesses in the past. Yeah. So that is cheap and easy as well. So it's easy to yeah. give employees uh, hardware and then connect them through software as a service, you know, SaaS products like Dropbox. And I think that is going to be more secure than trying to write down the serial number for the backup appliance you give to every employee, oh, which yeah. is how people used to do it. It's crazy. Um, and now all of these local computers, none of the data is stored locally. If it is, they've encrypted it, hopefully, right? Your, your Mac hopefully has it encrypted. Hopefully. And uh, if it's encrypted, it's really to hard to hack today, correct? Yes. The modern-day encryption, with the exception of maybe some nation-states... The weakest part is certainly the human. So right. I don't know your favorite passwords, Jason, if you want yeah. to tell your listeners. But. Yeah, my favorite password is don't <laughs> hack me. Password one. 
If you look at password distributions, yeah. whenever a data set is made available of what people are actually it's doing, it's incredibly bad, even today. So it's better, but still really awful. So password attacks still work. Oh. So if you have a Windows computer on the internet with no firewall, and even if it's fully patched, the odds that somebody could guess the password for your average person on the planet is really high. So that's oh. why we have things like two-factor authentication, and yeah. you know that's where the world has been heading for some time. But we're not all caught up, probably. Why on earth are Windows machines by default available on the Internet? Ooh. Uh, so at any moment in time, there are about 3 million Windows computers on the Internet with no firewall or Windows instances. It could also be a virtual machine. The reason for that is usually a misconfiguration. So ah. if you're a consumer, probably you don't have this problem unless you've done something weird uh, on your own. Uh, so hopefully you haven't done that, Jason. Yeah, no. For for sure not. Uh, for big companies, though, there is usually a default build image for how they install Windows mm. on a new computer or how a new computer would arrive at the company to issue to an employee. Uh, and if that configuration file is set up such that it can be accessible without a firewall over the internet, which actually happens pretty often, you could huh. have a very bad day. So WannaCry, another one of the big cybersecurity incidents, yep. partially propagated. There are a few different ways in which that propagated, but a Windows remote access protocol was one of them. Uh -huh. So that was a virus that could spread within the network and over the public internet by, again, self-propagating, looking uh -huh. for other exposed instances of that same remote access protocol. Um, in 1996, uh, in the uh, CIA Worldwide Threat Assessment Brief, which I enjoy reading, you read it every year. It's an annual. I do actually. Annual report I, to well, I know some people. You know, um, you know. Cybersecurity still top three in the last one. I uh, know, and with the, that was kind of my point. If you look at the uh, post Cold War threats, looking beyond our borders, we see much that is uncertain. This is from the February twenty second, nineteen ninety six. The stability of many regions of the world is threatened by ethnic turmoil and humanitarian crises. Pretty interesting 25 years ago. <laughs> Sounds pretty familiar, right? Two great powers, Russia and China, are in the process of metamorphosis, and their final shape is very much in question. And they go further to talk about how in uh, Russia they're actually having elections and that it could be moving to a pro-democracy. Haha, ha, it didn't work out. Um, and free nations of the world are threatened by rogue nations, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, and Libya, that have built up significant military forces Those are fine seek now. to acquire it. weapons of mass destruction. Fascinating how of that group, I mean, Iraq, obviously, we leveled, but uh, and Libya, I guess, had some changes. Uh, but North Korea and Iran still, 25 years later, uh, a very acute problem. Nowhere in this document do they talk about cyber in 1996. The internet was, I guess, a big catalyzing force for this to become um, an issue. And then if we look at this year's, which now I think it's the worldwide threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community. Yes. They changed it to be... More DNI is DNI, in your office, yeah. Which pulls together all of, and that's a post 9 11. Right, exactly. Concept is that the director of national intelligence pulls together FBI, NCIA, NSA data to do this. And they look at cyber and online influence operations and election interference as their top two. 
and then they go to master weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, and counterintelligence. Pretty interesting how that's changed. What I want to know from you when we get back from this quick break is how acute is the problem of Russian hacking uh, in the election as we look forward to this, you know, uh, 2020 election when we get back on this week of startups? I am loving this Sunicorn series. It's so great to find these next unicorns. Thanks to our friends at LinkedIn Talent Solutions for sponsoring this special series. And of course, you know, hiring is really hard and it's not as easy as just posting a job to a bunch of different message boards or maybe even putting an ad in the paper if people still do that kind of nonsense. Nope. When you're growing your business, you need to reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. And that's where I got Sir Charles, our amazing new producer. He wasn't looking for a gig. But he was on LinkedIn and he saw, hey, This Week in Startups, this great podcast is looking for a director. Hey, I'm a director. I don't like the job I'm in. Ah, It's okay. But this other job seems pretty dope. And boom, he was one of those 600 million LinkedIn uh, members who is there looking for connections, passively searching. They don't know they're looking, but they just, they pass by. Maybe they take a look. That's who you want. And those are the people on LinkedIn. So Associate Fresh. Creates a job posting for me, client success manager in Toronto. He selects the needs, the description, adds some additional screening questions, and he sets a daily budget, and boom, we're on our way to finding great candidates. And it works so well, and you can pay what you want, um, and the first $50 is on them. That's right, $50 right now, a 5 linkedin.com slash unicorn. That's right, U-N-I-C-O-R-N. You know how to spell unicorn. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn gets you a 50 $50. Go find somebody great to take your startup to the next level. Thanks again, LinkedIn. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Tim Junio is with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of Expanse. Uh, You can visit them at Expanse.co. They're hiring, of course. They've raised a ton of money. They've got a lot of customers. I assume you're in the uh, eight, nine-figure revenue club, somewhere in that range. Yep. Doing well. A couple of hundred employees now? Uh, 150. 150. So still uh, not out of control. like to be as efficient as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... When uh, we before we went to the break, Russian hacking, spear phishing, <clears throat> seems to be their greatest, uh, easiest path is to just get some dumb <laughs> congressperson, some dumb election official. You send them what looks like a Gmail, reset your password, and these idiots go log in, or they send a document share. And they don't look at the URL. They ignore the Google warning or their machine is an old Windows machine or something. They got some old Dell machine that's from 20 years ago. They never updated. And they fall for it. Why is this still happening, the spear phishing attacking? So that's our first question. And then let's go on to um, the hacking of um, voter rolls and machines. Okay. So you started the question with a look back to 1996. Yeah. So I'm going to get a little retro on cybersecurity too. So if we rewind a couple decades and look at what's happened, the Clinton administration actually did start a bunch of inquiries into critical infrastructure protection uh, as long ago as yeah the 90s. And there was a major event in 1998 uh, called Moonlight Maze. It was an intrusion set that you can read about publicly. A lot of the details have Moonlight been- Moonlight Maze. Yes. Which was suspected Russian intrusion 
intrusions into U.S. government networks. Mm. Uh, so that's where I think the uh, alarm bells started going off, where before that it was an understood threat, but it was kind of a niche threat. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's this book called Cuckoo's Egg. It's one of the, yep. like Cliff Stahl, one of the most famous books in the cybersecurity community. Uh, that goes back even further in the internet era. But I would say really the late 90s, the time you're talking about, where yeah. even though it wasn't in congressional testimony yet, that's because the seed was kind of just there for how this would grow. And the office that I worked in at CIA, uh, which then was called the Information Operations Center, uh, has now been reorged, but was starting to grow. So when I worked in that office, it was still pretty new and pretty small. Uh, The Information Operations Center grew into a much larger uh, entity over time. And as you look through, this is talking about the late 90s, when you get into the 2000s, the specter of the threat was getting more severe. You start to see more budget getting allocated to security programs. You do start to see it popping up in congressional testimony. And then when we had these other events getting past 2010, things really started to get destructive, like with the Sony attack and how there were North Korean politics involved in that incident. And uh, events like in 2011 of alleged Iranian state-sponsored hacking of banks, or uh, or at least using uh, denial-of-service attacks against banks. So trying to use this as a lever of influence and power, not just an espionage threat. So if you look at it at late 90s, very much espionage. That's how people thought about Moonlight Maze and other events. And then between 2000 and 2010, that's when we started to see things changing in the direction of uh, coercion, using cyber power uh, to create effects, not just steal data. And, and there's a profit I didn't answer motive. your question. No, no, it's okay. Uh, there's I'll, a, there's I'll, also I'll a the major profit motive. Um, people forget a large portion of the behavior of Russia has to do with acquiring money. And capital, this is a place where people want to acquire money. And so part of it is influence. But when you track the influence back, it's so that sanctions can be lifted, so that money can flow, and and so that money can be made. And in some cases, you can directly make it. The spear phishing stuff, that's going to continue because consumers and users of the weak link, correct? Absolutely. Uh, so I think the problem has gotten better in the sense of awareness has gone up and technology has gotten better. So if you were an individual you know, consumer or small business, I would really strongly recommend using Gmail, like just yeah. use Google's products or something like that, or uh, O365. The backend security that they are providing to help prevent phishing against you yeah. and all of their user base is actually an extraordinary leap in reducing risk uh, for the average person. So I would trust them over as a private company trying to create a bunch of email security. So uh, we at Expanse actually use Google as our email provider because we're still a you know small business by yeah. any reasonable definition. Uh, so I think that what Google has done has actually been a breakthrough. We're going back to, I think, 2012. They even started providing notifications that a government was trying to I get saw into that. your email. That was amazing. Uh, very forward-leaning stuff, yeah. Yeah, they're actually, they know the IP addresses of those hackers, of those nation states, and they know a spear phishing attack came in, so they try to... Yeah, they're cagey about the signal. So it might be that they know the infrastructure, which would be like the IPs they're operating from. It could be another signal. Maybe they are using their own Google accounts on the other side. We don't know. Uh, So who knows? They they have a lot of telemetry. It's Google. Like they're vertically integrated ISP, CDN, own their own data centers, are leasing cables. So they've got a lot of signal on the world that other people don't have. So if you're the FBI or Homeland Security or whatever, it's actually harder to aggregate threat information for 
American consumers than it would be for Google. They'd right. have Google to get the just, data from consumers, ISPs. Somebody would have to give it to them. Google just has it. Right. And Google has a much bigger data set and data scientists studying this. In your experience, the people at the CIA, when you work there, were these political people or were they career-minded patriots? If you had my, to pick. Yeah, my personal experience yeah. having worked there was that these were folks who really sincerely tried to be objective and apolitical. Yeah. And it was actually... Uh, borderline distasteful to talk about politics in the office. Right. And I wasn't even there during a particularly contentious era. So the Iraq WMD kind of fiasco played out as how can we be better? How can we avoid something right. like this again? It wasn't a you know political finger pointing kind right. of situation. It was more like, obviously, this ended up not being correct. Uh, what did we get wrong? And how are we not going to let that happen again? And yeah. so among, of course, close friends, everybody has personal opinions regarding politics. But that's in a place like that, more of a closed door, like down the street over beers yeah. type conversation. It, I personally didn't observe it entering yeah. into the workforce. If you were going to go, if you wanted to go do politics, you'd probably go just do them directly if you were that motivated. Well, and, you're still a citizen. You can go and yeah. uh, you have freedom of assembly and uh, expression or whatever. So you can go protest uh, peacefully if you want to in your spare time. You're still a yeah, U.S. citizen, yeah, but, but it it's just, not part of your job. And, and the culture is protecting the country. Like what I always find interesting about this sort of situation where we're politicizing these agencies is they – though people going there are so smart, they could do private sector jobs that pay extraordinarily more like yourself making extraordinarily large amounts of money being the founder of a great company, right? Like that's a much better career path if you're interested in money. So if they are taking the time, when you took the time to be there, you did it because you felt in some way patriotic or enthused by the work, one or the other or both, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the mission attitude, yeah. I think, is the strongest organizational culture I've ever seen. Really? So the job satisfaction for people who are working in something that has national security impact is through the roof. It's not just at CIA, but the people who self-select in, you're absolutely right, uh, have those motives and can actually fulfill them in that job. So I would say one of the strongest mm -hmm. lessons about culture that I felt working at CIA uh, as an analyst was the constant tie back to the customer. That's actually mm -hmm. the vocabulary they used during the time I was there. So the president is the ultimate customer, along with other senior officials. And even as a 20-something-year-old analyst, entry-level job, just getting trained, like yeah. still very early in my career, uh, the conversations would always come back to the customer in what we were working on. Like, what do they actually need to know? Uh, to and, make a decision. Exactly. And these decisions are very significant decisions in the world. So you have the weight of the world, quite literally, on your shoulders. Bad data <laughs> could be a bad could war. lead to people getting killed killed yeah. uh literally if their security is compromised etc um yeah when you look at the not to make this political at all but as knowing what you know running uh expanse and having worked uh for our government and thank you for your service what worries you about the current state of affairs with regard to this election malfeasance, you know, manipulation and processes, which parts of it worry you? The voter rolls being hacked, you know, Podesta's emails, the voting machines being hacked, 
the the ads on Facebook, the targeting from Cambridge Cambridge Analytica. What which pieces, if you were to break it down for all of us, worry you most? The piece that worries me the most is not technical. Uh, it's actually normative. Uh, is it now okay to tamper in U.S. elections? Ah. So if you think of the history of the Cold War, tampering in elections was fair game for uh, you know the both blocks in the Cold War. We were trying to interfere in local elections to prevent communist governments from coming to power and the other way around. Soviet Union yeah. was trying to get communist governments into power and keep them there. And there was a whole theory, including in you know the 80s uh, in the Reagan administration, that we should support dictatorships because eventually they'll become democracies. Uh, so Gene Kirkpatrick uh, wrote a book, Dictatorships and Double Standards, which was all about how communist governments don't have a path to liberty, but dictatorships do. So so this kind of stuff ah. of internal meddling uh, was actually pretty normal, but we as Americans uh, did not experience anything quite so direct in attempts to interfere with U.S. politics. So this is new. So to me, the biggest, uh, uh, I guess, our scariest aspect of this is, is it now uh, normal? Is it part of how we're going to experience international politics to have to fight this defensive battle on the home front, which I don't think we are in a good position to do. Like we're, right. we're just not naturally defensive because we're supposed to be a society of free ideas. And yeah. so we want people to be able to duke it out. And we really didn't plan against an arsenal of a nation state with sophisticated, subtle, you know, manipulative operations. Mm. Uh, we just don't have the immunities for that. Right. And the voting machines, because they're so disparate in their design, the chances of somebody hacking those machines successfully to swing at least a national election is small. I personally believe that to be a remote possibility. I think it's a small probability. Got it. So the voting machines themselves aren't particularly secure, by the way. But there's a lot of stuff around the voting machine that makes it very hard to do tampering at scale. So uh, there's actually a bunch of research. This guy, Avi Rubin at Johns Hopkins, uh, started publishing a long time ago, well before the Russian election meddling, about how uh, voter machines were insecure. And you can find online these videos of graduate students reprogramming voting machines to like play Pac-Man and stuff. Uh, so wow. the voting machines themselves can be tampered with, but you have to be close. Mm -hmm. So when you think about when you go into a voting booth and you are actually going to submit your ballot, there are people around, you've got the curtain. Police officers. Yeah, right. And But you could see your legs below the curtain, yep. right? So if somebody is in there like with a USB stick trying to, you know, plug in and for more than 90 seconds and across enough of them in the country to yeah. have an impact on results, even if it's just in key districts, it's a pretty hard attack. Should it's a they pretty, be pretty rough vector. upgraded to some other system that is more secure as technologists? We would like to think that throwing technology at it would make it better or given the cost of this. And the cost that would come from an election being interfered with, not the dollar cost. Should we just keep print ballots and not put these things on a blockchain or on a, you know, uh, hashed, whatever, immutable nonsense? 
What do you think the right solution is? So I'll put it this way. Uh, this guy, Bruce Schneier, who's a very famous security engineer, actually wrote basically the textbook in 1994 yeah. called Applied Cryptography. I think mm -hmm. that's when it was published. Uh, has a blog called Schneier on Security. Very influential guy. And despite over the course of decades being a voice regarding internet security, software security, uh, advocates paper ballots. Uh, yeah. And so that's uh, and one, of, one of the top folks in the industry you can point to. So when we look at how we do security for ourselves in the workplace, as we were talking about earlier, for yeah. consumers, the prospects of being able to have secure voting over our mobile phones or over the internet, despite everything we know about crypto, still comes down to lapses in human process that I don't think we can get assurance around. So I think having the voting machine with then some kind of audit trail behind it is still the right approach and not having those be networked. When we get back from this quick break, I want to know what the chances are in your mind on a percentage basis. So you get a little time to think about this during the break. Percentage chance that the Chinese government has access to TikTok's uh, data and by extension, people's microphones and cameras in America already en masse, tens of millions of users. And then second... What's the percentage chance that one of the major series, OK Google's, uh, Alexa's, have been compromised by another nation state and can turn on those microphones at any time when we get back on This Week in Startups? All right, listen, you need to have insurance for your startup. I do. And with me today, Matt Miller from Embroker. He's the CEO and founder. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. Tell me, what is the Embroker Startup Program? The Embroker Startup Program is the first fully digital insurance program for startups. So Got we it. can provide startups with the, all the coverage they need, less than five minutes, save them a bunch of money. Amazing. You just fill out a form. It's like checking out at Amazon. It's like checking out at Amazon. Just that, that simple. Easy. Basically that simple. When I buy insurance for my startup, do I pay monthly, quarterly, or yearly? You can usually pay uh, in advance for a year, but we offer plans that can be paid monthly or quarterly as needed. What is, at its core, errors and omissions insurance? What does that mean? Errors and omissions is insurance for liability you have in the capacity of providing your professional services. So if you're a software company and you're selling your software, if something goes wrong with the software and somebody sues you for the results of that, it covers you for that, that liability. So if you were making a spreadsheet software and you miscalculated because of a bug and then they took action based on it, they could sue you because the software was faulty. That's right. Got it. So get an instant quote and the $5,000 in AWS credits right now by going to Embroker.com slash twist. And when you check out, use twist10 to get 10% off. Thanks for coming in, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, welcome back. What are the chances that the Chinese government can turn on the microphones and cameras covertly of TikTok users in the United States if you had and were forced to put a percentage on it? going to be lame and not answer directly because okay. I, I don't have enough information about okay. TikTok in particular. I've never seen any evidence. Okay, let's take suggest. TikTok However, out of I could yeah. give it some high-level analysis yeah. of what I think. Uh, so first off, they're not just a legal system in terms of how the government is involved in their society is totally different, but uh, in a 
place like China, they could infiltrate even private companies with mm -hmm. people from intelligence and security services wow. to try and get access. So part of how to look at Chinese internet companies and why they're risky to American society and American business is we can't have the assurance that even if the leadership of the company doesn't want to yeah. conspire with the Chinese government, they may still be penetrated in a way that is incredibly difficult for them to detect and know about. Right. And you have to think about that for all of time going forward. So even if today TikTok is totally fine, has nothing going on with the government, right. super secure, same with Huawei, pick any of these companies, who knows, five years, 10 years, how that relationship with their government is going to evolve and whether or not they already have embedded employees of the company who are on the payroll and right. recognize they have corruption issues beyond all of these internet security issues. Right. So if you just paid somebody a hundred bucks a month or whatever, can you yeah. get them to walk out with a thumb drive that contains sensitive customer yeah. data? I would bet a lot of, on the answer being yes. over 80 or 90 percent that right. there's somebody there who can get you asymmetric information access. So- um, putting aside specifically TikTok, it's basically a, a done deal that they could do it. And if they could do it, why wouldn't they would be my logic. I'm not a CIA analyst, but if a government could do it and there is a reason to do it, I don't see why they wouldn't. So uh, I'll play devil's advocate because yeah, yeah, if, if I were a dictator, I would totally do it. You know, yeah. So it's a pretty good way to keep your thumb on yeah. you know, the people. But uh, if I were to make the devil's advocate claim, it would be that economic growth is most important and therefore ah. you don't want to risk the global user base for the product by backdooring the product in a way that is detectable. Got so, that so if they were playing long-term greed, Chinese government would want to see those Chinese companies be able to play in America. If you were the head of the CIA or advising the president and the president said to you- I'm not available. Not available. Okay. <laughs> Everybody knows. Tim. I know you're a modest guy too, Tim. Right. What should I do? Huawei or no way? Way. <laughs> what should we do? And if so, the president literally said to you, and it's your decision, and you're advising me. Said, should we allow Huawei routers, or just let's take them out specifically, so you don't have to have your company censored in China, or whatever? They'd never let you in China, I guess. But yeah. As a former CIA person, you can't go there, right? Um, I worry about getting off the plane. I, you could. Uh, they would would probably you ever know. consider it's it? It's in my LinkedIn. Uh, I have considered it. Right now, I probably wouldn't go for it. They're arrest I mean, it would be crazy for you I mean, with Canada arresting the Huawei executive, I don't know what the reciprocity is going to look like, what they're going to do to America. See, so I... maybe five years ago, it would have been fine. Like Maybe I would have gotten followed around or whatever. Yeah. But now there's a whole other level of... Like Christian Bale walking up to dissidents' houses and knocking on the door. I think those days might be passed with what's happening he in Hong that? Kong, whatever. You could go find the video wow. online. Uh, Chinese security people forced Christian Bale away from the house where they were keeping this guy uh, under arrest. So Christian anyway, Bale did that? Is American he crazy? Hero, apparently, or crazy, yeah. I mean, uh, that is a cowboy <laughs> move. I mean, you have to be a serious, insane narcissist to uh, or, be... Or he's Batman and the movies were covered. No, like I have to say, in this case, Nolan. I can tell you, if you are Christian Bale... And you go to China to knock on a dissident's door. Oh, my Lord. And he, this. Oh, you is, found it. They found look at, it. Look at that. Honestly, this is a deranged activity by Christian Bale because this kind of cowboy bullshit is the kind of thing that can screw up, you know, international relations I, I, in a major way. And it's he's doing it for his own 
virtue signaling, unless this is a family member or something, this is like a crazy deranged person, like that kid who tragically got killed in North Korea, who decided he wanted to go to North Korea and then go to the floors they told him not to go to. I think Dennis Rodman tried to be an and Dennis Rodman did that. This kind of crazy shit, honestly, this cowboy stuff. If you're a celebrity, is so dumb because. I think the facial hair is worse than the yeah. showing up at the distance. Anyway, house this is some seriously yeah, stupid. I, I actually don't know. I don't know his motives. Activist. And, uh, it's virtue signaling nonsense. Honestly, he may, even if he has great intention, this is a level of narcissism that I, as Dennis Rodman or Christian Bale, I'm the one because I played Batman or because I got 22 rebounds in a quarter. Therefore, I can solve this problem. And in that political climate probably he could get away with it. i mean he did get away with it today yeah. the point is i don't know like they're so freaked out i won't about go to Hong china Kong, no. i assume yeah uh the climate must be changing uh i, too I dangerous. assume in a way that yeah, yeah he probably so well, would you oh sorry go ahead no would you advise the president to allow routers built in china onto our infrastructure yes or no no hard no Hard no. So uh, the analysis that I just applied regarding yeah. all of time and the relationship between a telco company like Huawei and its government and the Chinese legal system requiring cooperation with their government in a way that would be completely secret to us and right. therefore unable to assess the risk means you use the word infrastructure in particular. So from an infrastructure perspective, I would not permit Huawei. Now, would I ban Huawei for consumers? So if you want to go on eBay and buy something, uh, no, I would not because you have a consumer freedom but in terms of what i would do as mm. you know president or whatever like operating yeah. uh, a massive national budget what would i do for the u.s government military etc no huawei and by the way just uh, fyi our company is doing huawei detection work for customers so we have written yeah. rules for identifying huawei equipment wherever it shows up so that we can ah. notify them if there is huawei equipment in their networks and for other chinese manufacturers and we did this for kaspersky so we found kaspersky embedded in lots of different government networks and nobody knew about it. Explain what that is. So yeah. Kaspersky is an antivirus product. Uh, the company is headquartered in Moscow and they are a global brand uh, that claims they have no relationship to the Russian government. Uh -huh. However, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a bit of an expose where an NSA contractor had Kaspersky software installed on his home computer. He stole top secret documents, stole classified documents, took them home. And then allegedly, this is like New York Times reporting. I don't have any official yeah. knowledge of whether or not it's true. Uh, allegedly, Israeli hackers hacked Russian government networks and found that they were getting files from Kaspersky from this uh, NSA contract. Of so it's course. A very, this is a very like, uh, you know, uh, wilderness of mirrors, intelligence, weird set of stories. What's wilderness of uh, mirrors? Wilderness of mirrors is an expression that refers to counterintelligence. Uh, it's the name of a book that's a history or biography of this guy who is a famous uh, uh, counterintelligence guy, James Jesus Angleton. So, so wilderness of mirrors is just like, think every reflection, is it real or is it not real? Right. Uh, what's the truth behind all of these images that are presented to me? So that image applies to this kind of situation. So Israeli hackers finding out about Kaspersky secretly stealing files from an NSA contractor's home is a very weird chain of That evidence. is a hall of mirrors because um, if you have to ask yourself, what is the Israeli motive for telling us? And would the Israelis have some motivation with the Russians or Kapersky, 
Kaspersky. Kaspersky. What is their relationship? Uh, is there a profit motive somewhere? So is this person a sacrificial lamb in some way? Like there could be all kinds of like, forget about double agents. That's like a... Yep. There could be all kinds of weird compromise. It gets more complicated. So because it's an antivirus company, they upload files to analyze them for malware. That's what it's supposed to do. Uh, Lots of malware companies do this. There's a database called VirusTotal, mm-hmm. which Google now owns. They bought it, and it's uh, uh, part of Chronicle, which was their security company, which got rolled up into Google Cloud. So uh, it's normal to extract files. So this other murkiness is, was Kaspersky extracting these files as part of how the product is supposed to operate. Uh, and even if they were, were they searching over those files for expressions like top secret wow. and whatever, like to look for sensitive information? Oh, so, my Lord. So, that is so we as a company amazing. don't have an opinion. We don't know. We don't have yeah. a type. But what we can say is, okay, Homeland Security has decided U.S. government may not use Kaspersky. We can build software to detect Kaspersky. So we're helping enforce right. the policy decision somebody else made. So yeah, same with building, Huawei. We're helping yeah. enforce the, So my personal opinion yes. uh, as somebody who's been in the industry for a while would be don't put foreign companies, networking equipment in core U.S. infrastructure. And it's not just Huawei. I would say that regarding other foreign firms. Of course. I mean, if all of a sudden Saudi Arabia decides they're in the, the router business <laughs> and they're making switches and stuff like that, we, I don't think we want the kingdom to have our infrastructure. That's right. Uh, And then as a company, we don't have an opinion regarding the policy, but Mm -hmm. we will help enforce our government's policies. And we would do that for any software product. So for any customer, if they ban a particular manufacturer, we would help them enforce their own ban, even if it weren't a government ban. Well, let's go to this question about the – I was having this debate. A friend of mine said it's impossible that Alexa or Siri or OK Google have been compromised. I said it's impossible they haven't. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's impossible to happen, and I, I'll explain my position. But I want to get your position on just looking at the four major voice assistants. What are the chances, on a percentage basis, that one of them could be compromised by a foreign actor, and they would have the ability to, in certain circumstances, turn on a microphone? Let's say if some absolutely insane person from our government decided they wanted to have an Alexa in their office or living room. I'm dying to hear your point of view. I'm happy to go first. It's yeah. your show. You, you know, you so go, you're you hosting. First. So yeah. I'll go first. Uh, I actually think the probability is very low. Okay. And so... But not zero. Uh, it's hard to have a zero probability assigned to... A, yeah. Exactly. So... <laughs> almost anything in information security. Uh, but Five to 10%, but would, 10 to 20. Uh, less than 1%. Less than 1% chance. So I have a, a few reasons why I believe yeah, let me hear the probability to be that low. Uh, the companies have an unbelievable incentive to have strong security, particularly for something as sensitive as microphones in people's living rooms. Mm -hmm. And the companies that you're talking about are actually quite good at it. Apple's pretty good at it. Amazon's pretty good at it. Google's pretty good at it. I don't know what the fourth is. Is that Cortana? Cortana, I guess. Yeah, with Microsoft. I don't know what their market share is. but uh, I just picked the top four because it it frees us from having to have you have blowback if your partners with Microsoft or something, they say, oh, you said this about us specifically. So I, I was giving you Thank a composite you. <laughs> so that it makes it easier for um, you to answer the question. It's an interviewer technique. By the way, Microsoft, turnaround story under Satya Nadella. Amazing. If Unbelievable. Have, yeah. What, I mean, we, that'd be our two. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, back to the... So first, they have a strong incentive for good security. Second, right. they really do 
invest. They don't right. just have the incentive and, you know, have mm -hmm. talented people. They've invested a lot on the infrastructure side of things. Yep. So I don't know this firsthand, but the stories I've heard related to how Amazon, say, does security for its data centers yeah. is so paranoid. Amazon employees don't know where other Amazon data centers are. Right. So they only know about where they are employed and right. they don't have a global view because they have this compartmentalization scheme so right. that even if you were an insider, you would only have part Partial access to stuff going on at yeah. Amazon. So what I nobody hear has like God that, view exactly, or, or very maybe few, five very very God very very few. Some room. So when I hear things like that, it warms my heart as yeah. somebody who works in cybersecurity. But then, of course, it's bad for me as a company because they build all this stuff themselves. So yeah. for Amazon to eventually, well, and they also about. have like airlock kind of situations where getting into the building. My understanding oh, right. is like it's like a multi-step process to go through like room after room into the building. So yes. a so, physical compromise is highly unlikely. Yes. And the third story I would tell is uh, the history of what happened with companies like Facebook, where think about social media and how they had to create internal controls. So what I've heard, I don't know this for a fact, I never worked at Facebook, but for the first four years or so, did not have internal controls such that an engineer could access anybody's personal DMs. profile. And exactly. they did. Exactly. They, they did. They were stalking. Somebody oh, yeah. was stalking their ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, reading their messages previously. Oh, wow. That happened at Google as Which, well. Which, by the way, happens in the private sector. Law enforcement, cops stalk their XYs, whatever. Course, like yeah. this is there's a baseline of privacy that yeah. you just have to deal with in a, any. But the sin here is society, that but, um, you could pull up anybody's thing, and there was no access control. And my point is, we're in a new era, so. I don't think that's how any modern company right. with consumer-facing interconnected services can afford to operate. So it's not just that they're investing, they have good people, they have the incentives. It's also now the, the standard, standard. is different. Exactly. So exactly. the standard would be, hey, if we're going to review audio mm -hmm. to make sure that we understand what the person said, there would be a log of who heard that audio. It would be anonymized in some way, so you didn't know whose it was. Just like advertising. So yeah. it freaks me the fuck out all the time. I mean, I get now Instagram yeah. ads for medications, and I don't even know where it came from because it wasn't in my email, whatever. Right. So that was weird. And it's I mean, we, we all, all have personal anecdotes like this, right? Yeah. So what's happening on the Google side or the Instagram, Facebook side with these ads, they don't have a Tim Junio is doing the following, yeah. you know, 10 things that can be used against him. It's all rolled up into some algorithm for what ads to show somebody who matches a set of criteria based on, you know, age and zip code and, you know, yeah. what websites I've been going to and whose Instagram I follow yeah. and so on. So I think it's very much the same with voice companies. Yeah. And I actually feel pretty good. I got to hear your version, though, of yeah. why you're sure. They're... So a lot of my uh, knowledge comes, uh, my deep knowledge of hacking comes from The Americans, television show, Amazing okay. AMC. Have you, have you watched The Americans? I'm familiar with it, but I've not watched it. Oh, my it. God. For a CIA it's about, analyst, uh, it's going to blow your mind. Russians living in the U.S. during the Cold War. Yeah, right? but Russian these are spies. deep, like, came here when they were 16 years old, got married, have kids, and their kids don't know they're spies. That's like, you know, the first five minutes of the first episode, you learn this. So they're travel agents in D.C. during the Reagan era, and they've been planted here since they were 16 it's years good old. policy, by the way. I wouldn't trust kids either. You said you— Right. Yeah. So, so uh, here's my theory. I don't know why people do this progeny thing with wealth transfer across generations. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Um, so here's my theory of why it has to have been compromised. Number one, 
there are human beings involved in the production of these things in software. So yes, they might have audit trails, et cetera. Here's a very simple way. Um, persons in Vegas, they get compromat on them. They're a quality assurance engineer. Let's say they're married. Now they've got them on tape having sex, or maybe they're in the closet. Now they have them on tape uh, having gay sex. Maybe they're uh, in a uh, straight marriage, and now they're whatever the the worst compromat you can think of. Did this happened on the show, or this is your. It is on the show, actually. Your uh, episode you've written. No, this is in the Americans oh, okay. episode where somebody is because it's taking place in the 80s, Somebody is gay, and got they it. literally these CIA, these KGB agents. And you think that's what's happening with big tech companies? Well, I know it's happening that big tech companies employees, especially a senior level or people who are on the front lines. Of, so if you phrase the question as like, is there infiltration in big tech companies? In, I'd agree with you in I'd America. With, in America, I'd yes. agree with you. I'd agree with Peter Thiel as he was making these comments recently in the last few months. But there's a difference between infiltration and then being able to go and listen Correct. to a microphone in somebody's okay. living room because that audit trail, based on the new era we're in relative right. to old Facebook, would get that person caught and fired. Correct. And so here is how it goes down. A lot of these people are doing fulfillment themselves now, Google, right? Uh, Amazon. Okay, so now you compromise some people. Let's say you compromise the delivery and now you know uh, where these celebrities or politicians or Giuliani fundraiser, whoever, Ivanka Trump's house, you know Ivanka. You'd say if it was compromised, pretty easy to get, uh, not Ivanka Trump, uh, who's the daughter? Anyway, one of the kids, one of Trump's kids. Let's say we pick that. One of Trump's kids orders an Alexa or one of their spouses or one of their kids' kids, one of Trump's grandkids, orders this. Yeah, pretty easy to forget about getting the audit trails of the Alexa, but uh, I, I, I got their Prime account and I know their address. That's pretty easy to get, you would agree, internally. Hmm. So they know that this Alexa unit is going out. They swap it out. They intercept it on the way. They put one in that's got an LTE connection and a second microphone. And it responds to, hey, Alexa. So now you've intercepted <clears throat> and you're now listening to everything. I'm skeptical. You're skeptical. Because I would think- it feels again, so this easy is, to me. This is going to the compartmentalization. I don't uh, think the person at the warehouse mm -hmm. who could tell the robot what to do right. would have access to the account information right. to intercept the package. They're, I different, send, they're different people. How about I send 100 Alexas for whatever units, mm -hmm. to a hundred different um, well politicians. Let me take a that have been compromised. Hold yeah, on, yeah, yeah. hundred different ones are compromised, and I say thanks so much for the support last year. Have a great Christmas and holiday season, Susan. And it's to John, it's to Jason, whatever. Of a hundred people, how many throw it away? How many give it? send it back or how many just set it up of a hundred you think 10 set it up keep it lose the package of the gift wrapping i'm guessing half of them set it up and they never even read the gift receipt it was just a christmas present i think that most intelligence operations are economical especially for poor relatively poor countries so uh I would look at it from the perspective of if I am a foreign intelligence agency and I want to hear what's going on in the bedroom of a politician yeah. as you're laying out, it is much 
much, much cheaper for me to watch people going in and out of their building, uh-huh. write down license plate numbers, and go bribe the housekeeper to mm. put something in than compromise Amazon. Oh, here's an even better one. I'm Russian. I open up, uh, I get a job at Best Buy. I work at Best Buy. Russians give me a thousand bugs. I put the bugs in every TV, everything <laughs> we sell. Bugs cost whatever, a thousand bucks each. It's a million dollar budget. It's no big deal. And then we just ship them everywhere. You could buy a lot of people access for a million dollars. That's you how think I so? think. That's how That'd I think be about the problem. I think it would be much better because the human is going to have a lot of mm. local knowledge and be able to update yeah. and adapt. So if they swap out the TV for something else, if you've got human enabled access, that is persistent access. Unless they get fired, of course, that's a risk yeah. too. But uh, where are they going to put the Alexa that you gave them for free? And if you're targeting presumably yeah. high influence people, elite people, mm. it's a ten thousand square foot home, whatever. Go down the list, and then you also have to deal with the information on the other side so who's going to listen to all of that audio Mm -hmm. or if it's automatically transcribed go through whatever your algorithm picks up as being interesting it is a big scale problem Mm -hmm. so if i had a huge budget and i were trying to do global access type stuff like Mm -hmm. i just wanted to have microphones everywhere or sensors everywhere uh maybe that's a big way to think about the problem but if you're going for a specific type of information a person who you want to blackmail I think it is way cheaper cheaper. to target them using classic methods and then modern tech. So think about the fact that this, of course, is a ubiquitous sensor, right? And this mine's broken and janky, but uh, it's got microphones, it's got cameras, and they're everywhere. Nobody thinks twice about it, sorry? And GPS, obviously. And nobody thinks about it as a surveillance device except the ultimate surveillance device. Go to Facebook locations and look at your locations. Oh, my God, it's scary. I had to turn off locations to Facebook. I'm like trying to just trying to turn your account off. Oh, my Lord. Right. So if you're a spy and you're going to meet with somebody else and you're going to have a clandestine meeting and you want to record it so that you can pass it back to your government, would you use some like super sleek, sophisticated spy microphone or would you just use your phone? So if you have human enabled access, there are so many ways you could Mm -hmm. use embedded IoT to try to eavesdrop within an environment without going after the best buy supply chain or the Amazon supply chain. It's just a... What's the most clever human factoring hack you've ever heard of, unverified or verified, most amazing, because I'm giving you my scenarios from watching Three Days of the Condor and, you know, whatever. Real world, human-enabled access. Or even a rumor you heard, Mm. just somehow a hack occurred, somebody got compromised. What is the classic one that sticks out in your mind as like, oh my Lord, that is unbelievable. Probably the most destructive was Edward Snowden, but I mean that he wasn't. Yeah. So I don't know what Why? his real motives were because of what it did to uh, how Americans view their government, and it ended up not resulting in a lot of policy. So yeah. this was uh, probably really bad from a perception point of view regarding our government and the intelligence community. Um, but what it, exactly did is the ramification of what he shared that the government was listening. I actually, I, kind of I actually couldn't were. find I couldn't find any policy changes. So it's actually no. an open secret that nobody talks about that Snowden had effectively no policy impact. So there yeah. w- was no new. Re- there was one law I think that was passed regarding one aspect of surveillance, but that's about it. There wasn't a big overhaul of NSA. Yeah. There weren't but executive the orders he, that we've heard about. Of the things he made us aware of, 
What was the most damaging of those that you thought, wow, this is screwed up? Or I think everything that he shared that was not about adversary governments was unnecessarily damaging, frankly. So what he reported in the media, again, no official knowledge of what was real or not real, but all of the spying on allies, which is totally normal. Like, what is the mission of NSA? It's to fucking eavesdrop. Oh, my God, they did it. Right. So all of that, like, what were were we doing with Angela Merkel and the EU and whatever, and information about Russia and China, which he also released, none of that was in the public interest, in my opinion. And that was almost certain certainly very damaging. He I'm speculating, but I, I don't, in my opinion, if all he had done is share the domestic surveillance stuff, yeah. even if I didn't agree with him, I could at least empathize with the point of view. Yeah. But since he released all this other information about actual Super dangerous. adversaries and things that are legitimately part of what intelligence agencies are supposed to do, uh, discredited him, in my opinion, as somebody who is motivated by privacy concerns. I think yeah. he was motivated by something else, ego or whatever. See, that's the thing is it can't possibly be that that he was motivated the if he was motivated you're right like why would you spill the beans on the merkel stuff etc so then it makes one wonder what is the motivation here is it a person who's just got some weird principle narcissistic i need to be the center of attention or he did wind up at the end of the day in russia it's a non-zero chance that he's was working and groomed by the Russians from the beginning. What do you think most people in the CIA or most people in intelligence think? <laughs> uh, I can't speculate regarding, yeah. but I can say that I think it's also sufficiently non-zero that it would be worth a real look. And I'm sufficiently sure non-zero, I, so that's yeah. <laughs> double digit. If I'm just interpreting, I here. think there's a good chance that, uh, that it's not just ego, and that somebody else was guiding him. Even if his primary motives did end up being ego, him being manipulated, I think, is not a uh, you know f- flighty. Uh, you know, hypothesis. No, I mean, he wound up in Russia. I mean, come on. What are the chances you wind up in Russia after all this goes? They don't have a great history with not putting a bullet in people's heads, you know? Yeah, like how is he running around free in Russia? It's not a great place to end up. Unless. Um, Even even if he were an agent of a foreign government, still, still, it's it's, it's, it's strange to me. I don't know if he's naive or was in fact a source or somehow manipulated by If you Russian worked at the NSA, you would know that if you worked with the Russians, going back to Russia is uh, there's a non-zero chance of you not winding up dead or in a gulag. Right? Yeah. I uh so hmm, so that's that makes the game there even harder cuz he's not dumb. He's very smart. So if he's very smart if not brilliant, He's somewhere between very smart or clever or savvy, right? Don't know. Don't know. He could be a useful idiot. Is there a chance <laughs> he's a useful idiot? What do they call it? What do you guys call it? Uh, useful? There's a term, useful idiot or useful... I'm a CEO founder of a software company. We don't use, we don't use useful idiot in our parlance. <laughs> this person on our team is a... No, there was that, always that, like, this person's a useful idiot or, like, somebody dumb in the middle. It's really interesting. What do you, what's your take on Assange and what he did with WikiLeaks... In relation to Chelsea Manning, that would to me seem tragic. And that guy seems like a crazy narcissistic Russian plant. So uh, I'm not qualified to make yeah. clinical diagnoses, right. but it seems like there was some you know, mental health stuff going on there. Yeah. And so uh, from what I 
remember of you know that era, some of what Chelsea Manning leaked did seem as though it were motivated by a personal, like ethical perspective. For her, for sure. Um, but I don't know uh, yeah. what was going on with her personally within. Also she was her she was suffering cetera, so. obviously through a lot. She's been very upfront about that. She mm-hmm. was suffering through her transition and other things. So he preyed upon her, and that conscience, her crisis of conscience. So I think what we're seeing happening with Ukraine right now, which is, again, another thing I'm not an expert at, but going through an inspector general and then whistleblower process is what I would have done if I were in the position of either of those two people, uh, partnering up with Julian Assange and hoping that WikiLeaks would be a responsible actor in sorting through classified information for what is in the public interest versus not is a guaranteed disaster. So- um, Yeah, you're going and with no an circumstances. Anarchist. Exactly, somebody who is anti-government, uh, anti-statist, anti-U.S., yeah. and doesn't care about collateral damage, uh, which or is or personal hygiene. I mean, that's and that's a, what happened with yeah. Greenwald and the Snowden revelations. I mean, they he he provided that information right, and they could have chosen to withhold uh, nope. aspects of it, and they, they did not, even though it's a U.K. entity. Um, so. I think what we're seeing with whomever the whistleblowers are now is what a you know real crisis of conscience should look like. There are policies right. and procedures in place where a democracy and we actually are a little bit anti-statist, right? right? Like looking at our founding history. So we want these checks and balances mm-hmm. to exist. And therefore, every federal bureaucracy has created some process for that. So looking again at NSA, nobody went to jail over any of the stuff that Snowden surfaced. And you know why? Uh, it turns out it wasn't illegal it was all authorized. There was congressional oversight. Right. He might have had a difference of opinion and viewed privacy differently from all the people involved in what he spoke publicly about in documents right. that were released. But that doesn't make it illegal. It doesn't make it unconstitutional. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't a proper procedure in place for helping protect Americans' privacy. Yeah. Um, and of course, there have been abuses of power repeatedly throughout the country's history. And I like to think that eventually justice catches up, even if it takes yeah. a little bit longer to go through a proper process. But that's a lot better than shooting from the hip and hoping that you end up with the yeah. right result for yeah. something as sensitive as operations that can get people killed who are trying to do the right thing for our country. I mean, and- that's the crazy thing is to have these people who have trusted us to collaborate with us in an authoritarian regime, in a place where spies are tortured and murdered and killed and their families are tortured and murdered and killed. These people have skin in the game at a level that is beyond Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and Assange would ever know. Yeah, probably from their point of view, from trying to, again, empathize, always try and see things from their side of the table. Maybe they thought the net benefit was greater. And I just believe that they were wrong. And that if, in fact, there were abuses, there are ways in which you can surface those abuses responsibly. We have Um, a good system. It seems like right now it's Ukraine stuff. The whistleblowers are been protected. And Even under which, assault, they and people go to jail for this shit all the time. So yeah. uh, it's actually uh, releasable under the Freedom of Information Act. If you just Google like NSA abuse or whatever, there are unclassified documents that have been requested under FOIA of people who have abused the signals intelligence system and ended up losing their jobs or even mm-hmm. going to prison. And then the contractors, like the guy who stole the information I mentioned yeah. in the, that Kaspersky scenario, uh, those people who are stealing government documents do end up getting prosecuted. 
included. Uh, yeah. So people who are abusing, you know, systems that are designed for national security for their personal gain uh, do get caught mm. fairly regularly. It's a very small percentage relative to overall yeah. how many uh, people are working in U.S. government, uh, but it is a recurring phenomenon, meaning there is a process in how do place they train, that uh, is working. How do they train you how, or how do they train people in government to avoid being compromised? So there's like a lot of strokes, there's yeah. a lot of awareness training. Like yeah. and we actually have to do this as a contractor. So we're a defense contractor. I mentioned oh, right. up front, Army, Navy, Air Force are all customers. Uh, so we're a defense contractor, and we have a group within our company called National Security Division that can hold security clearances as well for those government customers. So we do, in fact, have to provide security briefings to our employees. So it all starts with awareness, understanding that you're a target because you have access to information that is valuable to to an enemy of the United States. Mm. So starting from there, there's a bunch of things that you learn related to operational security, you might call it. And the baseline awareness is like, are people asking you weird questions on podcasts, et cetera? Yeah. About- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be a great way to do it. I'm trying to compromise about you. Secrets. <laughs> yeah. So we've heard of uh, 300,000 people on a so knucklehead what, podcast. <laughs> one of the ways I've heard an FBI counterintelligence person explain this is uh, if you're a two and a nine, like, approaches you in a wet towel in your hotel while you're traveling and like starts to cozy up, you should probably question their motives. If they're not a whore, then probably there's something else that's even worse. Uh, So (laughs) anyway, so uh, that kind of logic of our people probing and trying to get information from me, asking questions that are unusual, asking questions about my work that are too specific and just don't Mm. make sense within the context, as well as generally understanding the surveillance environment. Like you're saying, you don't want your Alexa speaker in a place where we're having a privileged con- uh, conversation because yeah. I think it's a non-zero Oh, you have skiffs in your building? Do you have to have a skiff? We do not have a skiff at our headquarters yeah. you in San one. Francisco. You should build be so cool. You could actually lease them or buy them as pods. So they have these oh. trailers that are like skiff in a box Uh, But the problem is you don't have connectivity and you also need to get accreditation for like storage. And Mm. there's usually no reason to have like storage of classified material. Mm. Let the government do that. FYI. But the connectivity is the hard part. So if you want encryption to connect to a classified network, there's a whole other set of stuff that has to happen. So Uh, but you can get a skiff. You can do it. You can afford it. How much are our phones the weak link now in infrastructure? Because I know you're monitoring Mm. the, the whole you know, the whole surface here. Are phones the real weak link now or not? So I think, uh, so I have a nuanced view on this. I don't have, unfortunately, a definitive clear answer. I think the major operating system companies, so Google and Apple, uh, are actually very good at protecting the security of the operating system. That being said, people install risky stuff and give app permissions all the time. Uh So I think the control through the stores has been pretty good, but we see examples showing up every so often. And it's a it, that's also a recurring thing. It's not a huge volume, but it's not zero either, mm. of malware that got through the filters. Ah. So one of the ways in which we have seen that happen is an app that's in an app store pass the filters at first, and then they modify it. And the ah. update is not held to the same standard, or at least ah. it wasn't. So and maybe they update changed, the chess but, app. 
Exactly. And now it's turning on people's microphones or, or doing something weird. Or when you got the chess app, you didn't realize you were giving permissions to communicate back to the chess app company's your location because they're reselling your location data. Right. So that stuff is happening all the time. So now remotely turning on a microphone and eavesdropping is another level. So the o- operating systems, again, are pretty good at alerting you yeah. to iOS wildly has. weird stuff like that. But if you are able to control the overlay, like basically what are you seeing on the screen, there have been some pretty sneaky apps where you don't realize that the overlay is active and it can capture what's happening on the screen. Uh, so if you're typing, it can see what you're typing. Which could just be a password. Well, now with Face ID and fingerprints, actually, yeah. hope that's less yeah. often the case. Mm. But sensitive conversations, texting, payments, that kind of stuff. What do you think um, the chances the president, because he uses commercial grade phones... People have got to be listening to those, right? Foreign governments can easily intercept phone calls. Back to wilderness of mirrors. So yeah. we know that is a yeah. risk, right? So if I'm an FBI guy and my job is like counterintelligence in Washington, D.C., I'm going to assume all these other governments are going to try and eavesdrop on all the phones at the White House. Yeah. So I'm going to deploy a bunch of stuff to counter mm. the people who are trying to listen in on what's happening at the White House and right. like uh, associated office buildings. So- I don't know the answer because yeah. it's a you know cat mouse sort of thing. So even though to a first approximation, I would say, oh yeah, he's got to have issues with eavesdropping because there's such a strong incentive, and it's so hard to control a city environment in the yeah. U.S. But the counter counter argument is we all know that those technologies are out there. It's not classified. Mm-hmm. Go to a law enforcement like commercial technology uh, equivalent of like an arms fair. Yeah. Like this happens for police agencies. They got all kinds of cyber and mobile phone tracking products out there. Amazing. All right, listen, Tim, you did a great job today. You educated us. Uh, continued success with Expanse. You're hiring Expanse.co. Uh, if you're a great, uh, what, developer, sysadmin, security expert. You're looking for it all. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe even sales. You do enterprise sales? or we is do it, enterprise do... B2B sales, yep. Yeah, all right. So if you uh, you don't have to have worked in the CIA, but uh, <laughs> they're a rocket ship. And you want to get on the rocket ship before it gets to space. So these guys are heading towards uh, escape velocity. Congratulations. Thank you so uh, much, Jason. What's it like to work with Peter Thiel? I love Peter. Uh, I like him too. So I'm optimizing for two things in life, uh, autonomy and constantly being intellectually stimulated. Yeah. And I think Peter's nailed it. (laughs) He's a really interesting cat. Like the people who work for him disagree with him about like a lot of stuff like Brian and Luke and Cyan. Like, but he's like one of the really interesting people in the world. He's I know also people very, hate him, some people. I was actually just about to say, he's also a very courageous guy. So he yeah. will go public with these opinions because he's trying to presumably influence opinion, uh, public opinion. And there's no clear advantage, or I don't know what the advantage no. is to him personally. And there's a lot of cost, as you're saying. A lot of people Big hate cost. the guy. Yeah. Um, but I actually view it he as... Was, yeah, go ahead. No, I think he's one of the most courageous people I personally know. Yeah, and you can disagree with somebody who's courageous, but intellectually he's fierce and... I think him calling out Google for not wanting to provide technology to our government, even if you disagree with Trump or whatever, or, you know, if our great American tech companies are not supporting our government, but they are selling into the Chinese government. 
Well, they have an AI collaboration in mainland China, I think is the point. And then Project Maven is an AI program for the Department of Defense. That was the thing that Google yeah. said they weren't going to support anymore. And I think there's a really interesting question to the topic earlier of are there insiders in these companies of who motivated those protests and why? Was right. it actually organic? Or something else. Wow. And I think the way the leadership handled it was poor, as opposed to, in stark contrast, Satya Nadella came out and said, hey, we're working with our government, and that's a good thing. Turns out America has been pretty fucking awesome in world history. Yeah. So we have this HoloLens program with the Army, and we're good with that. Yeah. Uh, and making that statement relative to what we saw coming out of Alphabet uh, made me very happy. I think that's yeah. what American What is Alphabet thinking? Doing. I mean, it's just, it's like this fake, woke like virtue signaling, like, oh, our government's bad. Like, this is the government that spread democracy around the world for hundreds of years. And we just went from 54% of people living in a democracy like 10 years ago to 51%. Like, it's more critical now that we support our government because the tide is tipping towards authoritarian control. The majority of people on this planet will likely live under a despot or a dictator in the next decade. So I think... That's scary, isn't it? Uh, I think that uh, if you just... Scary to me. The, they, so Microsoft and Google both want to be global brands, right? And so for Alphabet, uh, to be a global brand means... We saw with the Dragonfly search yeah. engine or whatever. They want to get back into China big time, right? It's very important for That's their... so desperate. But, so on the Microsoft side, yeah. what did Bill Gates do back in the day? He was like, oh, so we realize you kind of pirated XP like yeah. a lot... But, you know, maybe we won't enforce that because they wanted everyone to be running Windows, yeah. right, in China. So they got the market share by kind of looking the other way on yeah. uh, piracy of Windows install base. So uh, it, very different kinds of approaches. Yeah. Like yeah. Windows kind of backdoored the whole country because people were self-propagating the operating system. And, and now it's everywhere. Yeah, got in there. Um, but Google, Google didn't and Facebook didn't. Exactly. And they I think they want to get in. And so they're way oversensitive to anything that would upset the Chinese so government. So dumb. Google and Facebook has to realize that success in China means humanity uh, loses. Because if you are running any kind of information service or communication service, your job number one, as far as the government is concerned, is turning over people who are freedom fighters, intellectuals, anybody who cares for democracy, your job at Google is going to be to hand them over to be executed and tortured. Well, let's hope not. Uh, no, um, no, that will be the job of Google executives. They will, they will be explicitly told, somebody searches for something about Tiananmen Square, I need to know their name, you need to bring their IP address so we think, can pick them up. Why do you think Americans don't care more about the double standard? So Apple hacks whatever for the Chinese government at their data centers, lets them get access to everything that's going on with iPhones in China. Yeah. But then here, FBI cooperating over the San Bernardino dude, huge uproar. We're not going to yeah. break this phone for the FBI. You think it's like a subtle... What do you think? So uh, a friend who I won't name because I don't know if he'd want to be attributed publicly with the yeah. statement made a comment that it's racism, that actually we view a double standard and how American white people privacy is different from Chinese right. consumer privacy. And so right. we don't care as much right. and therefore are not offended. We're just like, oh, it's normal for China to yeah. eavesdrop on everything happening in the country. They're a dictatorship. But yeah. we, we're free and therefore it's yeah. not okay. And uh, I actually think there's a lot of truth in that perspective. So that's yeah. the 
the most persuasive argument that I've heard pretty for persuasive one, yeah. why in public I, opinion people don't care more. What do you think? It's just also a very subtle issue. And I think you have to really think on the arc of history, like in a hundred year worldview, if you give dictators any kind of cover, their behavior trends bad. If you hold the line with them, their behavior trends good. If there is no consequence for murdering a journalist, if there's no consequence for disappearing, you know, uh, people Everyone who run a bookstore. Everyone forgot about that, huh? It was yeah, a, it's like, oh, it whatever. Like, it was like five news cycles ago, so whatever. Yeah, yeah. who cares? Like, and if there's no cost, um, then their behavior trends bad. When I worked at Amnesty International, it was my first job. When there is a cost, letters, publicity, that's when behavior changes. And, you know, if we don't speak up and go to our NBA games with a free Hong Kong T-shirt on, which everybody should do this season, if we don't speak up about Hong Kong, what's going to happen to Taiwan? What do you think is going to happen in Hong Kong? Yeah. I don't know how it ends without violence. Well, you saw the government had to back down. The Chinese government had to back down. They're not really good at that on a, and long, not good on a long time horizon. But yeah. man, when you see those videos being shared on social media, they only had one choice, back down. And then the second choice is turn the internet off, turn off any foreign person coming to, Thai, coming to Hong Kong, and then roll in the tanks. And rolling in the tanks, that worked in the 80s when we didn't even have any insight into China. Now, rolling in the tanks means iPhones get made here and we disengage or iPhone production moves to Philippines, Japan, anywhere but there. So I, I think that they're on the verge of a civil war. And I, that is a outcome that is unfathomable in terms of the, that is the existential risk of the human species as far as I'm concerned, is a civil war in China if a billion people go to war with each other and, and the government with nukes and who knows what with else. nukes and whatever else they have, like this would be a humanitarian crisis that d- d- is incalculable. Well, at least there's a Din Tai Fung in San Jose. So if they nuke yeah. Taiwan, we'll still get our exactly. Shot yeah. I mean, they, they literally that is on their agenda. Like they the, the people in Taiwan are watching Hong Kong. And the South China Sea and Japan. Which is probably why they can't really back down, even if they temporarily back down. It's very scary. Very it's scary. very scary, right? Because if they back down, well, then Taiwan's going to start getting a little bit lit. And Hong Kong's going to be emboldened. Maybe Hong Kong goes up to Shenzhen. Who knows? And now, like, whoa, what happens next? You know, And that's why it's important for us to give them a path to human rights and democracy. We have to give them that path, right? Like We have to show them the way. And say, like, hey, can we just – anytime something bad happens where people's human rights are being violated, we need to have leadership here, both in the private sector and the public sector, that says we need to have a conversation about this. So with MBS, every conversation with Saudi Arabia needs to start with Khashoggi. Every <clears throat> conversation. And I don't understand who in the world from our community – like, I think there's three people from Silicon Valley going to this Saudi Arabian um, – the kingdom is hosting their internet like conference, oh. like their Davos in the desert thing. It's like if you're going to Davos in the desert, you have to get your head ima- examined. Like they they dismembered a journalist who was working for the Washington Post. Yeah, VCs don't really say who their LPs are. So the knowledge that they're a big LP in SoftBank ended up being 
Devastating for SoftBank. And more public yeah. than usual. So yeah. how deep do you think they are everywhere else in the Valley already? There are funds of funds, I know, because I asked the fund of funds, because mm-hmm. I wouldn't take money from Saudi Arabia, and I ask. And once in a while, a fund of funds will say we have like one family from the kingdom, but they're 1% of the fund. So if they had a $5 billion fund of funds that then went to VCs, 1% of that, $50 million, you know, they might have $50 million from some one of the 10 families in the kingdom um, who's splashing money around. So I think it's very, it's very hard because, you know, we have Harvard, CalPERS, MIT, other places to go for money. So the fact that Silicon Valley is even looking to Saudi Arabia or China for money, I think is crazy. So I'll leave you with another thought yeah. Yeah. Uh, as it pertains to what yeah. Expanse does, well, I mean, in yeah. relation to what you were saying. Yeah. Uh, we're going through a super interesting time with internet fragmentation. Yeah. So the Great Firewall is just one of different fiefdoms that we're seeing emerge on the internet. Yep. So it's happening with China. We're going to have less visibility going forward into what's happening yeah. in Hong Kong, like you said, potentially uh, in mainland China, too. Like uh, going back over a decade, there have been all kinds of local media reports on uh, violence against the communist party and people trying to yeah. rise up. And that's been really effectively suppressed. Yep. I think we're going to keep seeing that happen. And it's happening in Russia, too. Yep. And I think uh, we're seeing a weird new export market of China selling that surveillance technology. Oof. So we're in this uh, 1984 kind of situation where when the internet was first a big thing in the early 90s, uh, political scientists thought that 1984 could never happen. It was 1984 in reverse. Because yeah. we're all going to monitor our yeah. government with the internet and distributed IT. Instead, what we're seeing is authoritarian governments can now lock down a lot of domestic political dissent using that IT because they control the ISPs, they control the backbone, and now they can import a software package and process from China Mm. as a third party, like some other country in the world that's a dictatorship, uh, and then monitor their own people. So they're actually creating an industry out of oppression. It's a dictatorship. It's the authoritarian OS. It's authoritarian OS. So we have like our democratic OS. And that's really what this moment in time will be looked back on in history is these two different operating systems, communism plus capitalism, dictatorship plus capitalism and surveillance, and then democracy plus capitalism. And the question I believe is, you know, when you have this capitalism in two different flavors, it might be that in the short term, a dictatorship running a capitalist layer on their operating system could beat a democracy plus capitalism because we have it's messy here right we have to debate shit we have to elect presidents we have to you know it's it's not fluid we don't have eminent domain in the way china does to just mm-hmm. do things to unilaterally decide we're putting up a billion cameras we're going to have facial recognition you can't do that here you'd have to get permission and then the states and cities and everybody would revolt right that's the that, that's the next 100 years for this, or 150 years. And instead, the politics we're seeing is attacking our own companies. Right. We'll see how no, that the tech plays company, out. The tech companies are the enemies when we literally have communist countries running amok, murdering journalists who live in the United States, who are American residents, and who write for American publications. And we're letting them run roughshod over us, and then the NBA has nothing to say, and it is apologizing for standing up for basic human rights. This is a really weird moment in time. Mm. This country has to maintain its leadership position in democracy uh, plus capitalism. If we don't, I fear for the world. I mean, who else is going to stand up? Europe? There are another fiefdom. 
They're another feast. So by the way, with GDPR and how they too are trying to do antitrust against American companies, yeah. uh, fragmentation of the internet includes the EU zone. Yeah. So quick story, uh, we are having a harder time tracking cyber criminals because of GDPR. <laughs> so they're blocking public access to records that let us automate the process of building out relationships. So we build these network graphs across all of yeah. our data. What's an entity? So what's a big bank? Everything on the planet that belongs to the bank. Government agency. What's everything on the planet that belongs to that agency? We can flip that to say this is a signature we know is a bad actor, like a right. criminal organization. But you can't share it anymore. That's engaged in human trafficking, whatever. There is now a blocker in place Aye. because of the EU. So they're, Unintended they're consequences. So definitely they are not the thought leaders in this regard. They no. think they are, but no, they're regressive. Uh, they're regressive. Yeah. All right. This has been This Week in uh, Dystopia. Uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs> bye bye.